From Creative Force, I'm Daniel Jester, and this is the e-commerce content creation podcast. In this episode, Caitlin Andrews interviews Carrie Wyland about her move from photography to dam administration. The two discuss best practices and potential use cases for metadata, asset management, and how to support e-com operations. Carrie has a lot of experience with dam systems and the workflows that they've been implemented in and has seen all sorts of archival and management operations for many large organizations. I mean, I've been in dams that are just siloed for archiving purposes, ones that only connect to PIM, that don't connect to another CMS. There's some that only connect the work front or they've got them that only support the website. You can't put anything else inside that dam unless it feeds to .com. You can hear all about that and more in this fantastic interview with Caitlin and Carrie. Hello, this is the e-commerce content creation podcast. My name is Caitlin Andrews. I am stepping in for Daniel Jester. We have a really exciting episode this week with my guest, Carrie Wyland. Hi, Carrie. It's so good to see you. Good to see you too. So uh, the reason that I wanted Carrie, not only had she and I recently met each other after having an extremely similar photography upbringing that brought us together super close really fast, (laughs) which, you know, is a sidebar we'll get into. But Carrie was a prospect of mine at formerly Spanx and now is working in a completely new environment. And Carrie, why don't you kind of go into like maybe your perspective, how we met and what you're doing right now? Oh my gosh. Well, of course, it's an interesting story for us because we were in that very niche community of spin photography. And I know <laughs> what that means to us because in like 2016, that was like the craze for e-commerce studios. Everyone wanted a spin of everything. And that's what I came in. So I was doing that at Home Depot. We can talk a little bit more about prior to how I even got to Home Depot. But Home Depot, just production there with their brand new studio, I came in and just been like a year old. And they had a photograph. 5,000 things. And that was great once we got that done for the year. And by the time I left, we scaled up to almost 20,000 products a year. So I got really good at doing what I was doing for them. So yeah, and it's just, I think our greatest competition was with your team because you were at Snap 36, which I'm just so surprised that we did not ever meet until I I was the digital asset manager because that is such a small, like very specific skill of photographers to have. Like who does 360 view photography anymore? So I'm surprised that we've only just now met when I have left that world so long ago. (laughs) Oh, I know. I know. And I think when I met you, it was like we were the counterparts of each other in two like dueling banjo studios, right? So you know, yeah. 360 was hugely popular and hard goods. So when Home Depot was a customer of Snaps, I remember that was like the studio just kept, kept growing. It kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger until it was just as big as our studio. And it was almost kind of this weird moment when the business realized like, oh, wow, Home Depot is like another extension of this robotic photography world. So you and I kind of had that in common where we were running studios and trying to optimize an automated photography process even more so. 
And shooting in that way was very easy to time and easy to kind of gather information on. And I'm sure you were doing exactly what I was doing just for Home Depot in one brand situation, whereas I was kind of planting these little studios all over the place and watching them grow, which it lend itself to all kinds of like adventures. But now we look back on it and I'm like, it's, it's such a different world. So that's really exciting that like we were able to come together and actually like laugh about all the goofy stuff we had to do and all the crazy shooting we had to do <laughs> in those days. I know, those, those process studios are so different. I, I really, I mean, they shut those places down. A lot of them, they're not really existent anymore. I think maybe Amazon still does it. Maybe mm-hmm. Lowe's, I don't know, but there are, there are such production process, like heavy places. And it, mm-hmm. I know we got so good because we focused on every single part of those process details, trying to nail it, trying to get faster, better, do more. I mean, that was literally the slogan of the company at the time. Do yeah. more. It's like, no, the photography studio, do more here, do more there. And I was like, oh, we're survivors and it's totally fine. We can go and look back on it. But I, this is how I got into my damn role. I wanted to be done with that. I mean, you can only shoot 400 door locks that one time and then you're done. So <laughs> exactly, um, exactly. That's actually a great segue because I would love you to kind of introduce yourselves from the perspective of what you're doing now with dams. And that's kind of going to be the theme of the episode this week is dam management and actually kind of understanding how to unlock what dams can do for a studio, not only for brands, but for studios as well. So please, by all means, let's hear a little bit about how you got to this role. Okay. It's definitely been a journey to get here. Like I said, I was a photographer, a commercial photographer. I went to art school. I went to SCAD in Atlanta and I loved doing fine art photography. When I got out of school, I had that wonderful student loan note that I was going to have to start paying back. So I started looking into the commercial avenue where I could still pursue my art. There's a ton of great photography studios here in Atlanta. Um, I got to work on really awesome campaigns for Bells, for Whole Foods, racetrack, gas stations, plaid art surprise, producing all this type of content. And then at the same time, making my own stuff. And I ran into the same problems as all the other commercial studios. I make a lot of stuff. And where do I put it? How do I name it? And I kind of had to figure that stuff out on my own because no one had dams at that level. Dams were just way too expensive. So we, you know, we had stuff localized on hard drives, on computers, on servers, one drop. I mean, every Everything was just everywhere. And metadata can only get you so far because, yes, you have to make a file name that makes sense to you, but also to pass off to someone else. And that was just a nightmare. So when I did get finally picked up by Home Depot, I was hired as a photographer, but it was a very new studio. And again, we were ramping up to just produce so much. And we had production tracking in place. That was our dam inside the studio. We had a dam with our post-production team. We had a dam internally just to support HomeDepot.com. And it's like, okay, we got three spots where stuff can go at any given time. And it's all manual trafficking. And that's where I was just like, I have to get out of my photographer role to help the studio scale because we were just going so fast. (laughs) So I moved out of my role as photographer to kind of be in the middle of a production supervisor role. So I handled all the post-production logistics and really learned more how to leverage that metadata internally because when you were shooting that volume, you had to know what folder to shoot into, what kind of ordering sequence to help that 360 view photography, because if that stuff was not in a very specific order, it would not play right on the website and that would be a bad user experience. Yeah. So again, I was there for three years and just got really good at moving the volume uh, between 
six to 12,000 images a week, either to or from post-production or to and from our dam. And once it got into the dam, we, we really didn't do a lot of metadata. I don't like to say that <laughs> because like our, we packed so much stuff into our embedded keywords or our file names were like paragraphs because that was the, the process at the time. I'm not sure what they're doing now, but... <laughs> it's something that you would be shocked how many studios are still struggling with not understanding how they can utilize metadata, which I want to get into a little bit later. But yes, it's still, just to answer your question, it's still a very common problem. People do not know how to utilize metadata. Yes, it's a lot of manual movement, like I said, to and from those systems. And again, does it got to go to this server? Does it got to go to this DM? Is this DM even connected to that place? Can I use an FTP? I had to learn so much from just that file management. And of course, one man team under a skeleton team already you got to figure out and nail down your processes. I kind of look back, I'm like, oh, why did I go to art school? I should have gone to business school. I should have learned how to use Excel when I was, you know, 10 or something like that. Because I remember opening up an Excel document. Okay, I got to get really good at this now because I got to track all this stuff after post because we didn't even have the automation to send stuff out to our retouching team and then get it back. I had to track all that with a spreadsheet. So like I said, I had to figure it out myself and what the best practices and then one write everything down because I was the only one doing my job. And when I went out on a maternity leave, I wanted to start a family. And I came back after three months and the team had was like, we couldn't follow your booklet of what to do. And I was like, yeah. oh, that's a problem there in and of itself. One person cannot hold all that tribal knowledge. We have to find a better way to document our processes. And we can even talk about that later, how I've solved that, at least for my own teams. But yeah, it's not good when only one person can reproduce the process. <laughs> Absolutely. That's something that I think a lot of studios find their talent and find the best people on the team. And then they end up creating the processes, creating the booklets. And then all of a sudden, you know, you have to expect that that person is going to grow into another role or get into something that, you know, they might not have access to in the beginning of their career. So it sounds like that happened for you. What about dam management got you? Was it like, because I know COVID, obviously, we, we want to find jobs that you can work from home. That was a big motivator for me. But what was it about the management that you found drew you to that world? I really loved the tediousness. I have obsessive compulsive disorder. I was diagnosed at 18 and I love doing the same thing a thousand times over, but also then trying to figure out how to do it faster and better. And I also found that I'm like that as a mother <laughs> with my children. Okay, let's talk about the same thing over and over and over and get to figure it out faster together. So I liked the organization of it. I was really good at organizing my own work, my own archives. I love that with Home Depot, I could really have a lot to play with. They gave me a lot of autonomy to like, here, if you've got the time, we've put you in this role, you help us figure this out, let's help us get to that, that bigger picture and just do more. So yes, COVID hit. I wanted to be a better mom. So I found a better fitting job with Pfizer as dam operations. And I was working with other admins who historically maybe weren't digital asset managers. They weren't creatives. They didn't know the jargon. So that's where I came in. I was like, okay, I know the photography or the design language. I can talk to you about that. I can help coach you on what these better practices are on how to organize stuff because they still had a creative services and a marketing department. So I could work with them just under like the dam side. Now you can have dam connected to 
all different kinds of things, but that's where my background was, was the content production side of DAM, not necessarily the site side, even though I did get to work a lot with their sites authoring teams. So I loved learning about that, uh, how DAM and then like a content management system could kind of bridge together because that's where I was starting to see the most value. When I was at Home Depot, stuff was still connected, but a lot of things were still siloed. And then when I went to Fiserv, I was like, okay, I can see what this can do. We can put the right type of metadata, how to find your stuff easier, because they had just done a migration and there was nothing. There was no metadata on anything. And I felt their pain points. Like they walk into their dam and they're like, why can't I find this one image? And I look at it, I finally get to it. I'm like, well, here, there's nothing to search upon. Let's fix that. So I spent a lot of my time doing a lot of cleanup migration. And I really enjoyed that because if I couldn't find it, there's no way you were going to be able to find it. And I wanted to fix that. <laughs> yeah, actually, that brings me to something that I wanted to make sure I did during this interview, which was ask you kind of just for people that might be in the photography position or that might not be the one accessing a dam or interacting with a dam. Like in your terms, what does a dam do for a brand and how does it help the greater organization just for those that don't interact with dam on a regular basis? Yes. I love explaining this because I feel like I'm saying the same thing to my mother all the time because she still doesn't understand what I do. From like a tech side, it is the central repository or the hub for all reusable assets of a company. So all photography, video, it doesn't have to be just those types of assets. You can have all types of documents marketing, collateral, logos, graphics. I mean, the list goes on. Pretty much anything that a company makes and that can be reusable, even just internally, not necessarily for .com, can go inside your dam because there's a lot of great things that can be done with those systems. But if I'm talking to my mom, I just tell her I build a really fancy house and I help people move in or build it or renovate it and I help them get all their stuff organized inside their house. (laughs) That's a perfect, perfect description. So what do you think are the biggest benefits of of brands and even studios in some cases having a dam system like what are what do you think would be the biggest value points of adopting a dam protection and security of your assets and definitely getting to leverage what i call as code creating once and distributing everywhere so taking one asset putting it inside the dam opens up the possibility of either putting it to another dam or a brand central, another portal for outside vendors to come to collect, or it can go to a product information system that can go to other data management systems. It could also be supported for a content management system. So if you're designing a website to pull assets out of your dam, that's a great way to reuse it. You can also hook up dam to social media platforms. So you've got this one image that can be put in multiple places and everyone knows I need to get to the dam. That's the hub to go to it. They don't have to second guess, like, is this on a server? Is this in Dropbox? Or is this in my email attachment? Or some other kind of randomized place. And then they can just go there. And obviously, if the metadata is there to support it, they can easily access that asset by just putting in either a filter or a search term to return that image. Got it. No, that's that's perfect. I know that we talk a lot about product information management systems, PIM systems, And that's almost on the intake. So when a product is created, that's where the information is stored from a logistical inventory perspective that feeds into the studio where the content is created. And then that content feeds into the dam, which then goes onto the sites. That would be kind of like from a timeline perspective, how 
we see the flow. At least that's how we see it at Creative Forest. A lot of times where Creative Forest fits, which is my context. But, you know, you have a ton of experience with different dams. I know just different types of dams. Is there a couple of dams that, you know, you really love working with? Or are there certain systems that have really been like a cut above the rest? Yeah. So, I mean, I've been in lots of different not only products of dam systems. So yes, there's some big numbers like a Primo and AEM are like the two top tiers of the industry, but how those have been leveraged. I mean, I've been in dams that are just siloed for archiving purposes. Ones that only connect to PIM that don't connect to another CMS. There's some that only connect the work front or they've got them that only support the website. You can't put anything else inside that dam unless it feeds to .com. And I'm like, these systems are so expensive and the people who run them like me are not cheap either. And of course, if you have a team and all these licensings per year, it really adds up. Some systems can be over a million dollars a year just to keep running. So the more siloed you have those systems or the more you can't like, I preferably like systems where I come in and you've now supported not only your .com or your e-commerce teams, but also your creative services, marketing tech teams. Those two together, I see the best return on your investment where you can support pre-production assets and then final ready to be published assets. When you start bringing those two together, when they're siloed, too much manual effort has to be done. Too much development work needs to be done with APIs and kind of connecting those systems because that has to get updated pretty frequently because the business needs always change. It seems every quarter. (laughs) Of course, in our industry. Yes, exactly. So when I come into an environment, if I'm just like, if I get free autonomy and I get to kind of look at the build out of where we're at right now, I I do an audit and see, okay, here's where we, where we are. I look at the new business needs and I say, okay, this is where we need to go. And if I have that ability, I will reconfigure the dam to support that. Of course, not making too many changes that have, are built into other integrations that would break, but I definitely had to, to do that with one company. I came in and their dam was backwards. For, well, how I would have set it up, I should say. It's definitely one way to do a dam. It's just my, my, not my preferred. So I came in and I looked at the integrations that were already a part of that system going into PIM. And I'm like, okay, here's what I can do. It took a whole year and a half. And it took me to train a team to get to that. Tons of buy-in from stakeholders, making sure that I got the right metadata that was going to be needed that could help, you know, .com. And then I did a big rollout. I trained all the users again. It was a massive undertaking, but well worth it because now I got the company on the right foot to go forward. Wow. That sounds like so much. <laughs> it sounds like so much work. And I, I know when you go to a, a new place and you're like, oh, wow, you just gave me a, a giant pile to deal with, didn't you? I can definitely relate to that. You mentioned metadata, and I really would love to talk to you about metadata because I know, like I said, a lot of studios are still struggling with how to utilize metadata or they think that the image naming conventions is the metadata, <laughs> which is so, it's so surprisingly common where studios are still using image naming conventions as the searchability of their product image. Um, I'm just curious from your perspective, what are the different ways you can use a digital asset management system to leverage metadata from the studio? I know Creative Force has this ability to have assigned metadata naming and tags, and I know that that feeds really well into DAM systems, but I'm sure a lot of studios are not able to assign metadata at the photography stage or at least at the production stage. So what are some examples of ways that, in your experience, metadata has been utilized in just a really future-forward way? 
Yeah. Um, the file names, man, everyone wants to fight about file names. I know that we were doing that with Home Depot. It just seems like they were always evolving. You could never get someone to do the same thing twice. Metadata is a, a complicated word because it just describes everything. Yes, a file name is metadata, but all the wonderful stuff when you pull up all the XMP information of a file. And again, this is just like the backbone of an image. So if you're not a photographer, it might be kind of hard to understand. But when you get to the like what makes the file of, of an image, there's a whole back end spot with all kinds of stuff that you can put in there. You can put the photographer's name, which is really handy when you want to pull up their whole set of work. I will say that there's probably too much stuff. I think that sometimes metadata can be overbaked, but it just determines on like someone like Spanx who needed a lot of metadata because we had a lot of contracted photographers. We needed to know who did what set. And it was just an easier way if we embedded that information, we could pull up photographer A or photographer B and compare them and make notes and say, hey, next time we go to shoot, if we leverage these two guys again, we got to tell this one to do something else to make them match. So it was a great way to just start off like, who's the photographer? When in DAM, definitely thinking about the who, what, when, where, and why, that basic classification of how you've kind of grown up looking at things like in your house, like shoes. I've got shoes everywhere all over my house, right? I've got little kid shoes. I've got my shoes are upstairs. Now I have to look at this, like, is this a sneaker? Is this a little kid shoe? Like thinking about all those different ways that you categorize the basic stuff that you have in your life, you've got to do the same thing in a dam. And of course, photography can get that way. Do you have stock photography? Do you have custom photography? Do you have images of your building or the interiors? Do you have headshots of your employees? All that information becomes metadata inside of a dam. And you can either search or filter upon that. And that becomes really powerful on if you've got a system with a million images, how do you get to that one image in as few steps as possible. And that's leveraging that information, but someone's got to put it on there because that really impacts that end user. They walk into the dam, they go to the search bar. You don't know what they're going to look at. You could say shoe or shoes. How you've put that information in there is going to impact someone's search results. Yeah, I know a couple of examples that have come up recently when I've been speaking with prospects. I know one was geographical information. So like what types of products are popular in a specific state or in a specific region and having that actually inform the website on what items to put at the top of, of their bestsellers or, or, or what have you. Or another I know that recently came up was like model dimensions and you know, height, width, girth, you know, making sure that, you know, there were multiple ethnicities and that everybody was represented. So model metadata is another way that I think as a lot of companies are finding out more and more, they really need to actually put model information into the images because of the way that, you know, things are evolving and people want to see different lots of different people modeling clothing. So they need to keep track of that in order to resonate with audiences. So metadata, I could honestly spend an entire episode talking about the different ways to leverage it. But have you had any other instances that were really fascinating to you come up over your career of how companies have utilized metadata in unique ways? Yeah, I've got to, I'll speak to that point about the model information. Of course, right now in soft good um, retail market spaces, the the latest trend is knowing the model. If you have a name that's even great, it makes it more personal so that I can go back and look at who I was. So I don't have to remember 
that model in that yellow top, I could see a name. So that's great to know the model's name, what size she is, and then what size the product she is wearing. Because me as an informed consumer, I do my shopping on online. I never go into a store anymore. I don't even have time as a mom to go do something like that. So capturing that in all the different variety and diversity on a site is great because you want to have a small model, a, a large, and then of course the plus size and maybe someone in a taller inseam if it's a bottom wear that you're highlighting. And of course in video, you could have four models represented on a product image page. How do you capture that manually and at scale? You can't, you have to use a production tracking system to kind of build out that model profile, have some scannable like tag to really kind of, standardize how you're going to talk about this because I led a whole class for people to talk about how do we write out that information on .com because do you write an M? Do you spell out medium? Do you abbreviate medium? There's some different ways of just writing out the information that I didn't think I'd ever have to think about. It wasn't even related to DAM, but I knew for it to come into DAM, it had to be captured at the photographer or the content production level and then flow into DAM, and then it would go into PIM and then .com. And we would see a huge, massive savings because it would cut down on consumers' returns. We wouldn't have to, they'd get the right product, or they wouldn't necessarily buy two of the same product in two different sizes. They would accurately get the one that they wanted because we gave the best way to be informed on .com, that kind of end user experience. Did you see a lot of differences between working with hard goods versus working in fashion? Yes. Fashion is much harder because there's so much more flexibility. There's a lot more emotion involved with that type of brand or that type of retail. Hard goods, it's like, yes, you want to know everything that's in this image that's represented on a product information page. That's easy. But when you start getting into models in the fashion industry, that stuff changes. Like you said with diversity, you might have four or five models representing one product. But if you're in hard goods, that doesn't necessarily matter. It's all about what the product is, those specs. Yeah, I noticed when we were shooting a lot of hard goods, one of the most difficult things about that world is actually needing to give a ton of different dimensions and a ton of different sizing types of dimensions, like how to install the product. And if it was the right size for a particular, you know, if a faucet was a particular size for a sink or those types of things. I know I remember you know, even just shooting it, you needed to have all of that information in front of you, but to have that inform the consumer. So if they, if they typed needs to fit in to this particular type of product, that those products would then come up if you needed to buy them as a, as a group and things like that. So I know hard goods had, and especially in consumer electronics, those types of things came up a lot, at least for me, but I wasn't ever privy to like the damn portion of how those products were were administered. I just know that like there was so many details, but it was not in the same way that if you were shooting fashion, you it would have an entirely different set of information that would go along with those images. Yeah. And the great part about DAM is once we did get that information in, you could filter that. So if you were on like an email marketing team and you were highlighting tall activewear or something like that, or plus size models, and that made me think of when you're talking about hard goods, the other great example where metadata saved us, literally saved us at Home Depot because we had such bad hurricane seasons in 2016 and 2017 that I remember all my family in South Florida getting pummeled by hurricanes. They were able to go inside the dam and pull up seasonal items like generators. So like it was so early in the hurricane season, like late summer, that 
Florida needed a mass flood of generators. So they had to pivot the site to go support, like people were going to homedepot.com to look up, where can I get a generator? Can I get one online? Can I go to a store? Because everyone was losing power, but they were able to do that because that metadata was inside our PIM system that could feed.com. So that literally they were to be able to deploy like 30,000 generators to people all over Florida. And that was really incredible that we were able to do that because we had that search term. We had that seasonal information tag. Wow. That's, that's actually so fascinating. So that could have been actually saving lives in that instance. That's really, really, really cool. I mean, obviously very crazy climate change, but I mean, I have to say like that, I wouldn't have even considered that scenario. So that's really, really interesting. Carrie, it's been so great chatting with you. I could honestly talk to you all day about this and I just want you to know how how cool I think you are and how exciting I think your next endeavor is going to be. And it's been a pleasure working with you, especially after us finding each other after so long of being parallel <laughs> with one another. So I just thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. And if you want to get a, a hold of Carrie, you can we can drop her information, her LinkedIn information. She is fascinating. If you ever have questions about dams and metadata, she is brilliant. Thanks for joining us today, Carrie. Appreciate your time. Of course. Thank you so much for having me as well. I really appreciate this. That's it for this episode of the e-commerce content creation podcast. Many thanks to our guest, Carrie Wayland, and thanks to you for listening. The show is produced by Creative Force, edited by Calvin Lands. This episode hosted by Caitlin Andrews. Special thanks to Sean O'Meara. I'm Daniel Jester. Until next time, my friends. <laughs> it's a long, it's a long list of names. Hey, Ian. Hey, Ian.